Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Welcome to Season 7, where we will continue to delve into the world of coaching, learning and development. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. I'll now hand over to them to introduce themselves. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. I'm Charlie Morgan. I'm the Senior Rugby Writer at The Telegraph. Hi, all. Uh, Ross Hamilton, a freelance rugby analyst. I used to be an analyst for Saracens and then England men's 15. Um, currently work with mainly BT Sport, a lot of different broadcasters and sort of different media outlets all around rugby analysis. Guys, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Uh, really looking forward to this kind of last few weeks, I guess, have been a bit uh, non-rugby related in general kind of coaching and development and learning. So nice to, to really get stuck into some rugby specific stuff. Um, and yeah, couldn't find two better guys to uh, to delve into that world so thank you for coming on um just a reminder that all the links uh, to the content we discuss will be available in the show notes on rugby coach weekly um so charlie will come to you first uh, far away here we go well, so my i chose to um speak to you guys about the two sides which is the documentary for the last summer's british Irish lions tour of south africa it's hopefully fairly medium to lowbrow topic that can get us some um, some medium to highbrow discussion so it was built to me as the best Lions Tour documentary since 1997 which I'm not sure about because weirdly enough I've got a soft spot for the 2001 um, documentary because that was the tour that really kicked on my relationship with the sport um, I remember being on a holiday um, and going to bar Greek bars with my dad um, and watching the second and third tests and just really Falling in love. Obviously, Australia won those both of those games, so I was heartbroken. Um, but I can remember just really falling in love with the narrative and um, being sort of intoxicated by those really big personalities of those those famous players playing. Anyway, two, so two sides is really polished. It would say it is the most polished kind of um, product of those documentaries that have, that we've had from the tours, and mainly that's because of circumstance, because they've worked harder with. In interviews and kind of featurettes from families. I think they've, really, they've done a really good job of portraying what was clearly a unique tour. And as the name suggests, they've also got inside the, the South African camp, which was really cool, um, kind of feeding the um, hunger that was brought brought on by uh, the Chasing the Sun documentary, if you remember that from the, from the World Cup, which was pretty cool itself. Um, I took four things away from it, I guess, is kind of sorry, three things, if we can kind of um, take them as threads. The first one was how, and maybe this kind of, um, the context of the Premiership final really got me thinking about this, was how, nar- how the narrative can transcend the aesthetic when it comes to the rugby being played. Um, it obviously feels like such a long time ago last summer, but so a lot of the rugby, apart from the kind of major flashpoints, were sort of, um, I'd forgotten, but... The Kanyoan was just phenomenal on both sides of the ball for South Africa. But generally, I wouldn't have been gutted have I never had to speak of that tour again, I don't think. Um, <laughs> just given just given the attritional nature of those games um, and obviously all of the, the stuff that went on behind the scenes and, and what that kind of meant for the game. Um, but having said that, I do remember being really gripped by the second test, um, as I was by after, as I was by the Premiership final, to be fair, after the first 20 minutes of it. And a lot of that was because the narratives and the storylines and, and how you feel building up. And maybe this, maybe this is heightened because I'm a journalist and I'm in, a, in some sort of way trying to feed those. Um, but I felt that actually retrospectively, getting a little bit of a look inside of, of those two camps and those setups preparing for the series, how much it meant, what they, what they were sacrificing, as we'll come on to later, um, really enhanced the kind of the, the matter of it. Um, anyway, yeah, so the next thing is, um, as I said, the, the, the insight that you get of the South African camp is, is really interesting. And the main part of that for me is how strong the alignment is between the messages given by Razi Erasmus and Jack Nienaba, and even outsiders like Felix Jones, who is a fascinating individual, the alignment between their messages and the South African psyche and how important that is 
because I've just never one thing one thing I think from all of these documentaries is and it was something that a friend said to me once was don't you think it's really interesting how actually the messages between the players are, are exactly what you'd get at in an under 15 game and in a and in a you know to play at the sort of level level six seven whatever you'd be getting those similar messages between the players and in a lot of ways you'd be getting the similar message messages between the coaches and the players but um making those messages seem sexy and seem resonant I think is such a skill and the way that um, Erasmus does it particularly uh, by tapping into um, by tapping into what South Africans really are at their core is is so interesting to watch and we've got it a little bit we've got it a lot to be honest in, in Chasing the Sun you get it even more in this two size documentary and there are they're just I mean he's he's a amazing orator Erasmus and you just get and as is Ninaba but you just get these messages like um not to not spoil it for anybody that hasn't watched it but they're talking about the Lions attack and, and they say look it looks really pretty when they're playing against boys when they're playing against men so when they're playing against you and when you're gonna um you know rush up and, and rush them and disrupt them it's gonna look awful these are the obvious swears, but I guess I make myself comfortable before I start dropping it <laughs> before, before I start swearing myself. Um, so there's that. And yeah, and just as a threat to that, we can get, we get just to kind of again revert back to this, the, um, that there's a real kind of parallel between between the Premiership final and Leicester and Saracens and how those guys have um, made unsexy yet important things sexy, or if not sexy, then then resonant for their players. So their players really understand the importance of it and just the, the finale and how Leicester won that final really, um, really illustrated that. And, and, and at Saracens, they've got Dan Vickers, who has been one of the unsung heroes of that, that era and how he, in his, when you speak about his players, it is his skill to repackage information and just make it resonant, make it emotive. I think that's um, just a, a really... Um, interesting side of the game that we don't necessarily see, but is really crystallised in in two sides. I've done a really good job of that. And the last thing was purely just how easy it's probably been to forget the sacrifices that those players made during during COVID. Um, you get a really vivid idea of the outbreak in the Springboks camp at the start. Um, there are um, if you, there's a view down, which is a really really well edited bit there's a view down a um, hotel corridor and there are red stickers on the on the rooms of the players that are infected um <laughs> it's just amazing that they managed to keep that series going you, the lions meetings everybody's got masks on every every um seat is you know 1.5 meters apart or whatever it had to be um just little things like when so Stuart hogg hadn't hadn't been in the test side had he for two two to, to tours so it's a huge deal for him and when he got picked weren't many hugs because I think they were wary of you know infection uh Josh Adams um didn't go home for the birth of his daughter but pulled out of a game and then was sort of staying on in the tour which must have been a really difficult atmosphere um at the best of times never never mind when you're leaving a daughter behind when you've left a, um, when you've left a pregnant um partner behind and there's one point where he's asked um, are you kind of glad you're here? Are you are you glad that you've you know that you've chosen this over being there? And he and he's a fantastic interviewee, uh, Josh Adams, super open, um, and he thinks for a while. And he actually he's actually asked twice. And in, in the middle of it, he volunteers. You know, I wasn't I wasn't sure whether it was this the right decision. And at the end, he, with reflection, he says, "No, I am glad. I'm glad because that will be something that um, my daughter." In the, in the future she'll be super, she'll be extremely proud that I was there um that's just what you know one 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 personal story of it and then the last thing is obviously no crowds which is great from a point of view of listening to those um conversations between players and um and selfishly the, the little the animosity that's going on that was really interesting to hear um the whole documentary actually starts with uh Cheslin Col Colby's um taking out, oh God, I've forgotten who took out now. Um, but to, to don't get the yellow card in the second test, that's where it starts. So you're like, right, right in the thick of it. And you can hear all of that echoing around the stadium. But um, yeah, for there to be no crowds, seems like ancient history, but also seems 
extremely bleak. Yeah, so they were they were the three things. Overall, not sure whether I'd have to binge. I'd have to have another lockdown myself to binge all of the other documentaries to kind of rank them or whatever. But and as I say, real soft spot for two thousand and one. But just just a, diff, a different documentary for what was a, a different and hopefully unique talk. Oh, bit of feedback. Sorry. Uh, yeah, what a brilliant rundown. Um, really, really interesting. Why do you think it's the uniqueness of the Lions? In, in, jump back to your kind of the narrative transcends the aesthetic. Like, yeah, at times it wasn't great rugby. Do you think it just lends itself to brilliant stories because it's a story in itself of overcoming so much from a Lions perspective and, and it's a huge challenge and, and it is unique within the professional game in any sport almost? Like, it doesn't it doesn't happen in too many places like that. Do you think that's why it resonates? And then because we've always had behind the scenes, people just connect with it. Like what's your take on that? Yeah, that's a huge bit of it. Again, it's the, I can't remember how many Lions 15s I had to pick for work, but I was glad when I had, when I, I was glad when I could stop, but the, the, the hype machine, the hype is just, is generated by people. Is there, there is a hunger for it. There's a, there's a hunger for it. There's an interest in it. And I think a big part of that is how, players see it and how players value it and when you think that the the Stuart Hogg sort of snippet is, is his dad comes on and that's the that's the point I mean about with time to kind of produce this they've managed to delve into some family stories his dad comes on and said Stuart would tell you that he isn't a lion yet despite having been in 2013 and 2017 and despite having been this icon to be fair of, of Scottish rugby because he hadn't had that test cap yet and there are, there are little things like throughout the documentary, Alan Wynne Jones and, and Mara Toji, their small their small talk between each other is constant. It's it's almost like they're looking, it's almost like they've played together um, 50 times and they can sort of, they're, they're just because they're constantly sort of checking with each other, sort of a bit of a nod, bit of a bit of a shrug here and there. And you can tell that those guys have built up a relationship purely from the 2017 tour that they then brought into the 2021 tour. I think that those relationships and those interactions are really important for fans. Um, the fact that the fact that uncannily, maybe apart from Australia in, in 2013, recently the Southern Hemisphere side has always been on the up, and, and obviously you had this um, this South Africa setup at the minute is particularly special. So that was that um, heightened the prestige of it. Um, there are yeah, there are loads of there are loads of strands to it. Um, to the allure of the Lions and and despite it being um, such a disruptive tour and as I say hopefully unique um, that comes through which is really nice What's your take Ross? How big a fan of the Lions are you? Yeah obviously huge fan um, Charlie I was going to ask how much does that seem to take precedent when the rugby was particularly poor uh, as sort of linking back to your point as well about the the Premiership final. Think of last year's Premiership final and the semi-finals as well with Harlequins doing such a good job there. That was all about the rugby and the attractiveness of the game and what it looks like. And, and there may not have been that many stories sort of behind it that year, particularly anyway. This year with the two Saracens or the two teams, Saracens and Leicester, not the prettiest of rugby. I still enjoyed the game because I'm a rugby fan, but you might need to be sort of a bit more hardened to enjoy that. But the story of the final with Leicester's story with Saracens to an extent was incredible. And I'm a Saracens fan. I work there. I, I live around the corner. I know the guys there. And I love that Leicester won that because of all the stories and everything that's gone on from that. But how much was that important because the rugby didn't necessarily take centre stage? Yeah, hugely. I think maybe where the, the Lions suffered was that there were three of those games. I think, I think there was, um, and it kind of, seemed as though I mean from that very first tackle from Amon Daly it was almost like right well moving the ball is going to be pretty difficult in this series um and then that's where you know we had the tension we had the kicking exchanges and that was where um and that was where it stayed for three te three tests whereas with the premiership final you know these guys have come through they progressed having played a certain way and there and the, and the semi-finals had been a bit more open so the final was always going to be pretty pretty tight I think I don't know I don't know maybe well maybe maybe it was just the flashpoint of Ala Davis's um 
yellow that really kick-started the game and then the Leicester tries off the back of that. But I just, I remember being really gripped and I had a bit of skin in the game as well. I'm from Leicester, born in Leicester and had a lot of friends who would have been extremely, extremely happy, gone through sort of um, just, a, just a horrible time with the way, with the way, the state that Tigers have been in. Um, so it would have been happy, it would have been happy either way because the Saracen story I loved as well. Um, I actually did. I actually went back and tallied a few kicks from the. Um, so the most most kicks there were in that Lions Lions series in a game was sixty five, and that was forty fewer than there were in the Premiership final. But wow. it felt like the Premiership final was a, was a little bit more expansive. Even maybe I have to watch it back again. But than some of those tests, and that might have been scrum resets. That might have been malls. That might have been more. Um, I know it's not dead time if you're in the type five, but time when you can potentially take a sip of coffee. Um, and that, that really interested me. That really surprised me, actually. I thought, God, they were, they were, they were, there's been so many kicks in this Premiership final. It's almost like a Lions series, actually loads more. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 th- I think, yeah, the, stories, the story had to be strong. You wouldn't be watching other, other sides play three tests like that. Um, but also, I think you're forgiven maybe the style takes a back seat when it's such a big um, undertaking. So beating the, beating the spring box, such a big undertaking. So you do whatever, whatever means necessary to oust them in, in whatever particular style you can, you can, um, you can put together. Same with Leicester and Saracens. They, Saracens know how to win finals and they've, and they've used that template. Leicester clearly figured out that they weren't going to give them any, weren't going to give them any lineouts, but they were pretty handy aerially. Um, I mean, the, the, just the being there on Saturday, the groan when um, Ben Young's box kick went up, really, it really made me laugh because that has, that has just been the, the bane of supporters for however long. And, um, and yeah, it kind of turned to a cheer and everything was all right again. I, I find the element of, as you say, building identity fascinating. Because, I mean, I don't, I don't know Saracens particularly well, but Roger might be able to enlighten me. Like, how much do they love the fact that lots of people hate them? Like, it seems to me like they, they love what they do. They love the style they play because it suits them and that they know they can win doing that. And they would just seem to be a ridiculously tight group of competitive individuals. But it, there's also that little bit of me where that just goes... They probably love being the pantomime villain a little bit. Like that probably just gives them psychologically something or just, I don't know, you know, um, kind of siege mentality that that they just don't care. Like if they get to win and they get to prove a load of people wrong along the way, that's actually a bit of a bonus almost. And and like just how that then resonates or in, is in contrast with Quinn's, do you know what I mean? Just play. Like we're all about expansive you know, show rugby, we'll just, we'll outplay you, we're not, and and we'll almost have that little bit of, yeah, I guess arrogance that we're good enough to to beat everybody doing it our way, um, and we'll look down our nose slightly at people that don't view rugby the same way. Like, and I, I think they're a great contrast because they, they hate each other as well, so it makes for an even better story. But I'm interested in in what your perspective on, having been embedded in that environment, how how big identity is in in that sense. I'd say the biggest one is the fact that they don't care. It's not that they take a lot from it. And if you sort of go on an individual level, I don't think a load of players would like everybody to hate them. That's not what they're setting out to do, certainly. But they just don't care. So they will do their, um, their they'll play their game style. They'll do whatever they need to do to win. And one of the messages, which actually came from DV, Dan Vickers, Charlie, you mentioned him, was don't get bored. Don't get bored of the things that we're doing here. It could be very easy to, for Leicester to get bored in that final of keep doing the same thing every single time. Like eventually, I want to get my hands on this ball and play. That's possibly why you start playing rugby. But that's not how we're going to win. If you're going to do that, you're going to lose this game. So do not get bored of what we're doing. You keep putting those kicks up. You keep kick chasing. You keep doing those things. Um, and I wanted to sort of like mention or link into that how Saracens players, and we see pictures of it all the time, Ben L, particularly on the weekend, Marrow a lot when they're celebrating everything everything ruck turnovers scrums everything and i don't necessarily get the hatred all of my mates hate it and they're sort of local guys they would know some of these guys as well and they hate it and i don't i don't really understand it just because of understanding what they were trying to do with that is they are trying to get themselves energy 
every situation they see is a little battle and that they are trying to win the energy. So if you're celebrating these kind of things, they're just building themselves up. I think you can see, I don't think anyone particular, uh, or particularly is implying this, that they're going into opposition's faces and rubbing their heads in the ground and thinking you lost that scrum. It's not that. They just walk away and they're pumped and they're shouting to the fans. So it's not sort of um, too mean, I wouldn't say, but they're, all they're trying to do is fill their energy tanks as much as they can. It might deplete the opposition at the same time, but it's all about getting their own energy. So just linked into they don't really care. They don't care what your opposition think. They don't care what fans think. If that helps them in their team environment, winning games, that they are going to do it. And that's it. I, I would 100% agree with you, apart from Marrow at times, I think is a brilliant advocate of just shithousery. Like, was it was it uh, Exeter where he's joined their huddle and he celebrated when he got held up? Like, there, there are some brilliant bits of him. And I just, like, that's playing the game. And anyone that, that queries that, oh, rugby values and stuff, and I'm like, but that happens in all walks of life. Like, we, we love the fact the coaches spar before games. And like Gatlin's obviously going back to the Lions, been a huge advocate of that. Um, Razzie, like that was one of my questions. The role of Razzie, did you like? Do you guys think that is just about portraying? And, and victim is a strong word, but but he seems to have galvanised, as you say, the the South African psyche. He epitomises that, but everybody is aligned behind him. Like I don't see any South Africans on social media saying, well, "I'm not sure about this Razzie bloke." Like they are diehard, like. Every, world Rugby hate Razzie. I'm going to support Razzie. He's he's been picked on again. He can't get away. Why is? Do you know what I mean? So, do you think that is a character? Do you think that's just him? Is he playing the game? Like, how much does that align almost with he's giving his team energy because he's the focal point and he's presenting and finding these battles, whether they win them or not. Everyone is judging that that he's you know he's fighting their cause for them. So I'd be interested in your guys' take on on where you think he fits into that kind of mold. I, I wonder how much how much it matters whether you whether you kind of separate the the, the caricature I guess from the, from the real person because it works. And you're so right. I, there is not a better illustration of how he galvanizes is the perfect word because. Um, there isn't a better illustration of how he's done that to South Africa as a nation than social media and how nobody thought, you know what, Nick Barry, I feel a bit sorry for Nick Barry, actually. It, it was remarkable. I thought, I thought from when you could see it bubbling up, and I appreciate there's, there's, a, there's not too much on this in the um, documentary, and you get a good insight on, I don't know why, but I don't know, I kind of um, was quite, was a little bit more interested in, in hearing, and this is why him and Nina Arbo are really good kind of, double act because Nina explained it kind of in quite a cool calculated way he just said that we needed the feedback from Nick Barry from the first test quicker because if people give penalties away then they need to be dropped I thought right okay I get that I get that frustration blah 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 but you see this building up from when um and Gatlin plays the game as well right so he he was he sort of questioned why Marius Jonker could be the TMO for the first test um and that's where it all started um I thought overall that was just a mess. It was horrible. It was unedifying, and the and the collateral damage of Nick Berry's career. Always, I don't know how anybody could overlook that from the start, and it was always going to go that way, and it was always going to go the way of just a pylon, um, and that happened. Um, but Erasmus just is a super sharp. His his emotional intelligence aligned to. As, as, as far as it pertains to, to South Africans, it's so sharp and you see that. And, and, and that's where, um, that's how I think he's got so much out of this um, setup. And it made me wonder, it made me think, because he was, I can't remember whether it was post-Lions or pre-Lions, but he was linked to the England job, wasn't he? And you, and you think, I wonder whether he'd be that effective um, in, in that role, because that would be, if not taken away, then then certainly diluted. And what we've seen with England is Eddie Jones going, Eddie Jones going um, post 2019. I need a scrum coach. I'll get the scrum coach that has absolutely battered my scrum, Matt Proudfoot. And just when you watch Chasing the Suns, jump to another documentary, Matt Proudfoot is on that same emotional beat as Erasmus, and he is 
you know, he's in tears. He's in tears in that when they win the final. He's, he's so emotional during these team meetings. And you wonder whether when, when a coach doesn't have that, how, how do they make that up? It must be a real skill to make that up. And just pick up on a couple of things um, previous to, to Ross's previous point. I had a couple of texts from mates about Benel. I didn't mind it myself, but it just that that had come up, which was quite interesting. I had genuinely hadn't noticed it at the time because obviously we're in the we're high up, and um, you only really look at the TV monitor for when you've missed something. So didn't see any of the celebrations, but it fired it fired up a few mates. The Saracens um, parallel with the Springboks is interesting. Andy Edwards, who was their sort of head of conditioning at Saracens, is now with the Springboks, having replaced Alan Walters, who went from the Springboks to Leicester. And I think they're both, I don't know Andy as well, but um, Alad is certainly the kind of yin to Steve Borthwick's yang in that he's this super charismatic energy giver. Um, but it's a small world, isn't it? It's kind of a bit of a kind of um, going around in circles. But yeah, no, um, certainly that that just really caught my eye. And, and just to go back to, to Felix Jones, obviously, who's the, the outsider in this, how diligent he is. It seemed that he knew in those moments when when that was being drummed up, where the emotion was being drummed up, he could take a, a little bit of a step back, although he does had he did step in every now and then. You are listening to a Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. If you want to find out more about this podcast and all the other great benefits you can get from being a member of Rugby Coach Weekly, why not visit rugbycoachweekly.net to find out more? That's rugbycoachweekly.net find out more about how to become a member and receive a load of free stuff. Now, back to the podcast. What do you guys make of the Niemba and Razzi relationship? Like, I appreciate you're, you're in slightly different roles, but if, have you experienced that in other places? Because it, I don't know, I, I, unless there's a really detailed, clear conversation between them, which there must have been, like it doesn't happen organically, I don't think, to the way they've done it. A head coach, I guess, as most people would see it being overshadowed by a director of rugby. Like, how? What's your perception on that relationship? And and have, would you have seen that in other environments where, you know, somebody who should be almost leading is is kind of taking a little bit of backseat? And maybe that suits them. Like, I've, I've got no insight into why they go with that, but it, it it's clearly been something they've um, played on. And, and seems to be reasonably effective, but I'd be interested in, in what your guys' take is. I'm, I'm guessing, but um, Ninaba's background is as a physio, isn't it? So I wonder whether he doesn't mind being taking a back seat when, when somebody like Erasmus is, is, is needing to, to hold the room and maybe it works like that because there's a little bit more give in, in, where, um, in how Ninaba looks at it. Um, I'm probably, probably pronouncing his name every time wrong every time I say his name but um, those, those, it's a, it is a really interesting dynamic and I just to have those top two again just to bring up Walters and, and Borthwick um, speaking to um, Leicester players before the final they were saying that actually one of the biggest skills that Steve Borthwick has brought to bear since he's become a head man is knowing what he can't do or knowing what he's less skillful at and getting people around him that really do um, that really do can can make up for those shortcomings in, in, inverted, in inverted commas. And Ninaba, we know, is uh, a re- again, really played on emotion as, as this defence coach. Uh, the guys who played under him at Munster um, were really fascinated by that. Really, again, a real um, analyst and a, and a technician. They've known each other so long now. I think they were in the South African Army together or the Territorial Army together previously. So I guess when they... I guess they would when you when you, with that time you would really um, know how to how one another ticks. But I guess the the real skill is looking like you're in a united front at all times in front of your players, so you can maybe have that friction and iron out um, issues behind the scenes. But when you're presenting whatever you need to present to players, you you really look like you look like there's that give and take there. Just to jump in on that point, Charlie, and talking about Saracens again, I don't want to bang on about it, but it's sort of my experience and my knowledge. If that's what I can offer here, then I'll do that. Um, but where both we might have learned that is from Mike McCall. Mike McCall, for me, uh, you know, first-hand experience helps, and I don't have that of other um, directors of rugby, but I, I feel I can see it, 
is that he is the best director of rugby. He isn't the best head coach. He isn't the best forwards, backs coach, whatever it might be. He directs the rugby and everything involved in the rugby, the very best. And if that's something that Steve Borthwick learns, he's like, I'm the best line-out coach, fine. I'm not the best motivator. I'm not the energy man. I'm not anything skillful in defence. So I bring in whoever he needs to bring in around him to support that. I mean, that's, that's a fantastic skill set. It says a lot about character of a man to be able to do that as well. Not, I'm the big deal here. I'm going to sort everything out. I'm going to get paid the money, all of that kind of stuff. To say, no, this is my wheelhouse. I need the support from everybody else. And Mark was the very, very best of that. Bringing in the people, allowing them to do their jobs as well. He's very fortunate. I mean, he had at some point Andy Farrell under him, Paul Gustard, Al Sanderson, still the guys there, incredible coaches, all doing great things. And yet he was able to see that you're the very best in these. I'm going to let you be the very best in that and not try and take that away from you, make it about me. I'll just sit at the top and pull the strings. Great. And for Mark McCall, he loves that. He wants to see in the background as well. But yeah, just skill sets that I guess they learn over the time and, and where it's got them seems to have done them well. Do you think that then becomes, for Borthwick and Mark McCall, like both have, have been kind of framed um, as potential England coaches and I guess that will that the noise around that will just become louder and louder and louder as we get closer to the World Cup and whatever happens, happens and then Eddie's gone if, if he is gone and the reviews and, and appointments and things. Like, do you think there's maybe now an issue with the England head coach, how big that role is but also how different that is to the day-to-day running of like is somebody like McCall going to want to walk away from a fantastic environment where he gets to do that every day to to see guys for what 20 weeks a year like that's a huge change isn't it I think it is and I think again that's the skill set and uh, and almost like um, Charlie you were sort of saying with South African coaches and how they work with each other that someone's willing to do that and maybe not with Eddie of how he wants to deal with things. He may want to be too hands-on if he is the head coach. And I mean, I don't know if it's as simple as just his title, but if we call him the head coach of any coaches, then he may not have the ability to step back and do everything um, sort of above that, oversee everything. But if you do want that structure and that model, then you might want to mark the call. But Steve Borthwick might be better, slightly more hands-on than, than Mark McCall might be. So I guess it depends on the structure that you, that you want as an, as, an England, um, as an England team. But then really depends on the personnel as well that you get in there. I'd, I'd never thought of it that way, Ross. I'd never thought of it as a um, guy going in with a director of rugby skills and, and maybe the coaching being a, being a kind of... A, more focused and then that becoming tough I'd always thought of it as someone like Stuart Lancaster coming in and wanting to coach but then being pulled out if that makes sense so yeah I mean the way the way Eddie seems to have made it work over the years is because he is a bit of a showman and he enjoys and he enjoys that side of um that side of the media thing I know the media side of things was something that I think Stuart Lancaster's on record as, as saying it that was just another thing that was, you almost don't realise how big a deal that is until it's kind of plonked in front of you. Um, but yeah, so uh, we're saying Borthwick McCall, double act, are we? I mean, so it's a, it's a great thing just to chuck out there. But you know, maybe it's a thing I can consider if we were trying to find a replacement for Eddie Jones, yes. And is it ever just one person? Um is it Erasmus and Inabar? Is it, is it the combination that you have with those two and the, and the different sides that they bring? Is is the model that Borthwick has shown and proven to have worked a less of the way to do it, to bring multiple people in there? Is there just one head coach? Harlequins last year lost their head coach and they sort of managed everything. Tabo Matson comes in and still sort of sits on top of everything, but they won the premiership last year without that. So, you know, are there other models out there that you can look at that don't fit the mould typically? Um, but can still work. Maybe it's something to look at above us, obviously. It seems to have been an ongoing issue. And I, I like England rugby didn't start with Clive Woodward. And, and I think he probably gets, maybe he did professionalise it. I don't know. It depends how much you believe his, his own hype from his book and stuff. I'm not sure. Like, yeah, I'd be slightly cynical, more cynical of him now than I was back then for sure. But he was always England manager, which I just thought is a real subtle difference. And again, like speak to the people involved back then. He didn't 
well, if he did coach, they they would be skeptical of it um, as to how good it was. But he got the right people in to do it. And then if you look at you know Ashton um, uh, Robinson, like all were asking were head coaches, but all were asking for a manager slash director of rugby type role. And then we've kind of, you know, Lancaster would seem to have been the perfect person was on record again saying like probably want a DOR to take some of the media pressure off and just let me crack on with some of the bits. And and then Eddie, I guess, maybe bridges that gap. But speaking to people, he he maybe be a little bit less hands-on on the training field. So maybe he's a little more of a DOR. But it, it feels like that role has been quite confused for quite a long time. And maybe that's been part of the ongoing issue of, why no one's ever quite sure like put very good people but maybe in the wrong role without the help that they needed or asked for and I'm again as you say beyond beyond our remit to solve this problem but I I do think it's you know apply that at any level community level professional there there seems to the, the clubs that get that right seem to have real clarity on what is the role you know Baxter again talked about taking a step away is clearly a very good DOR man. I will get the other people to deliver this, but I am I'm running the show. And and as you said, then others are are more more hands on, and and somebody else that's a manager that isn't you know camera facing or, or public facing is doing some of this other stuff. But maybe England's issue has been they're just not quite sure exactly what that role looks like because it, it it's a huge job for one person, isn't it? And that's the bit I've never I've never quite understood how. We say you only get to do work with them 20 weeks a year, but you, you must be bloody busy for, you know, pretty much every other day. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's a question in there, but I'd be interested in, in whether, you know, what what way would you guys, if you if you were appointing it, would what kind of structure do you think would work best? I'll just jump in here. My interesting, or what I potentially think is interesting about that is, yeah, okay, you appoint Eddie Jones or you appoint a head coach, but how many coaches have been under Eddie in his reign and how many have come and gone? And we hear stories about it's tough to work with Eddie and the um, sort of brutality of everything, which I'm sort of aware of. Again, I mean, I was sort of minor Stuart Lancaster in my time at England, but, but crossed over with Eddie Jones and not had any personal contribution with those guys. But the workload is intense and it's not something you can do forever. Um, but I mean, is there something in there that appointing those head coaches or the coaches being just as important, maybe more than than the head guy? Yes, they're important. They're the directors of rugby for a reason. But Mark McCall gets it so right because of every, everybody underneath him and how good they are. And obviously it's a balance in getting the two. But you just wonder, I mean, Eddie obviously has a hand, I think the only hand in picking those guys. But whether that's something to look at as well. Yes, you want to pick somebody who sits at the top, but actually picking the guys who are going to be doing the hands-on coaching on the ground is just as important, and maybe that sits away from the director of rugby. I don't know. I was going to, I was going to bring up, it was really interesting, Phil, you brought up Rob Baxter. The, the Exeter season sort of been a little bit maligned, and I know they ended up finish, finishing seventh, didn't they? And they could have been in the playoffs, which speaks to how consistent they've been that that is such a jarring result for them. But I think he's been on record. Uh, Will Keller of the Times did a really good interview with him where he said, oh, yeah, I've had to just kind of figure out, I think his phrase was sort of which, thing, which pies my fingers are in and whether that kind of is going to be the best way to go forward. He obviously has that stability to be able to reassess as well. And I don't know whether somebody at the top of the England, uh, the, where, they are, where they are, if you would be able to give somebody the, the freedom to say, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know whether that's working or whether I need to do more of that and less of that and, and whatever that, it must be harder to readjust once you're in a job like that. And Baxter again, he just drops sense bombs all the time, doesn't he? But I think when he was asked about, the possibility of succeeding Eddie, he made the point of saying, I have to figure out what the job is. And um, that's what they will have to be doing as we speak. I have to say one guy that seems to get overlooked or not mentioned as much would be Conor O'Shea. And, and, you know, he's been an international head coach. He's been a successful coach at, at everywhere he's been. Um you know, Italy, I actually think he did a really good job as much as the results are probably always going to go against his record. Like he still progressed them and developed them. And um, and I just wonder in terms of his role, now he's he's kind of managing the performance pathways, all that type of stuff. Like is, is he then the perfect guy 
having been an international head coach, he understands the pressures. Does he then sit and migrate into that DOR role, if we want to call it that, and then you just get the guys into coach below him, but they share that responsibility. Like it, maybe it's time to to move away from the the all seeing, all dancing, one individual and and share that. But it's it just interesting he doesn't maybe because he's out of sight, like he's not in the prem every week, so his name isn't getting banded around. But I, I feel like it, it, he would be an obvious guy to step in currently with his role. But it is interesting how he seems to fly under the radar. I might suggest that with Italy and his role there, his his big success for me was the, the pathway, was the development at the 20s at the moment and have been for a couple of years, are very, very good. The, the, the men's team, the first team still aren't. They're still losing all the time and not not performing at Six Nations level specifically. So whether he would be a, a reasonable candidate to think he wants to coach England, I don't know. Again, beyond us, it's a, it's a reasonable question, reasonable thought. I think his his role within England is justified because of the work he did with Italy, and that was sort of where he um, he he had an impact and his strengths were. But yeah, head coach, different story. But again, way above us. Love it. Um, well, we could just kind of chat general rugby stuff all day, but um, Ross, you are going to talk to us about Moneyball, I believe. So we'll kind of just shift the conversation in that direction and uh, see, see where we go. Uh, perhaps a very obvious choice for me and, and spoken about a lot in the past and it's been a big deal, but um, it was really important for me in sort of my career, something that I can reference and heart back to that became such a big story. Um, obviously with a movie made after it as well, um, but just purely around the basis. So, I mean, it's it's in baseball. So Moneyball was a revolutionary system and style to, to select and identify baseball players to, to the Oakland A's in America for them to win games, and they, they very nearly won the championship. Um, but the, the sort of overriding point around it for me, a lot of it's not relevant to a lot of different sports, and I don't think it's quite relevant to rugby. They broke them the players down into their sort of raw numbers, raw statistics, their percentage chances of hitting, getting on base, pitching, all these kind of things. And it's such a closed sport, baseball. There's one pitch, there's one batter, and that's sort of it. It's very defined and very restricted in that way. So therefore, quantifying it is a lot easier and you can do that. I don't think you can do it for rugby. I make no sort of bones about that that you can try to. But the big principle of all this that I would try and sort of reflect is information gives you power information gives you better informed decision knowledge is power the more information you have the better and that comes from data that comes from multiple sources but all of it is evidence that enables you and your organization your team sporting whichever rugby to make better decisions on players in the first place on styles of play on selections of your team however it might be information is huge and that is then my world. I'm an analyst, so I pick out the numbers all the time. And there are, I couldn't tell you how many conversations I've ever had with, with multiple people saying, this is too much. These, these numbers are too much. It's too much for fans. It's too much for us. It's not going to form us in any way. It's, it's above their heads. And with respect to whoever says, says those things, it's, it's perhaps just a sign of the times that they've not grown up with it. It's not been part of their world for so long. That they can't then apply it and it, become, it becomes a little bit beyond them and it may become something of a fear that thinking well, actually this is where sport world business anything you apply it to is going and yeah it's not my skill set so therefore i might just um, try and keep pushing it away but it's so important in everything and all it does is, is it's one element as well again as an analyst i've worked at multiple places and i'm not for one second say that you should pick a team based off of stats or you should pick all your players. You should identify a talent based off of the numbers and the data. Not for one second do I ever say that. If someone says that, I think they're wrong. If someone says you you just use the, uh, the old eye test, I think they're wrong. There's something in the middle there where it combines together the context of the subjective and objective all come together, and that's where you find sort of the marriage. But omitting either of those, both of them are wrong. So sort of taking the learnings from Moneyball is information. Getting as much information as you can in the first place informs your decisions and gives you the best chance to, for success. What does that look like for you in those environments, Ross? Interesting in terms of 
like what data do you share? What what data would you maybe reflect on as capturing but not using? Like, is is it about let's try and capture as much as we can that we think is useful at the moment, but some of it might be just building a bank of information to then use later on down the line. Like you're not, you're clearly not presenting the coaches or the players with all the information you share every single week. So like how how do you go about capturing everything and then distilling that? and understanding what is important and what isn't. That's such a great point. And if I'm honest as well, that's my job or an analyst job in my mind. Um, I've had some conversations, I had some meetings with, with Harlequins previously about this and that we were talking that capturing as much as you can in the first place is the very best way to go because then you don't come to a situation at the end of the season and say, oh, I'd really love to know our line break conversion percent. How many times we actually converted anything off line breaks? So, all right, well, let me go back and code every single match from the season and see how we did with that particular thing. Come back, present that information, but oh, okay, um, how about off of lineouts? Oh, hang on, let me go back and start again. And it's just a very reactive method of doing it. If you code and capture as much information as possible, you will always have that available for any sort of questions that arise. Phil, your, your point is spot on, is then that could become too much. And I understand that's a situation when it might be too much and it's overbearing and there's far too much information to find the important bits but that's where you have somebody who's you know across the data and they aren't able to to look into it and find out those important bits and then you can present it so week to week it might be different different for your your opposition that you're playing the, the style of rugby that you might play might change season to season we talk about this as in seasons of the year as well your winter season to your summer season might be different so therefore the data might be different that you want to look at all of those things are important, but to be able to distill it and make it relevant and um, make it actionable, I think is quite huge as well. Again, as an analyst, I sort of find, I see a lot of things. I follow a lot of things on Twitter and, and enjoy that kind of stuff. And I see lots of guys you know, getting involved in, in rugby and in the, in the data world, which is amazing. But there might be some just small disconnect of what does this data mean and how does that affect our team or benefit us in any way? going here's all my excel wizardry and i can show you any kind of data that you want is great and that's a great skill set to have in the first place but big big difference is what does that mean and how can it affect us and i think that's where um again people like myself analysts come in and a lot of people i can't remember who said this but sort of describe them as they are they are coaches in our office they aren't they aren't the performance analysis who just chuck me some data and then i use it they are the coaches who present the data and the evidence. And that, again, is all my job, all I've ever tried to do in the broadcast world. If I'm doing some commentary for BT or articles or supporting anybody in anything, all I'm going to do is present the data, not my opinions. No one should care about my opinions, quite rightly. Just going to present the data and what that says and how that can affect us, affect our team or our organization or what we're trying to show on television, on BT or whatever it might be. All of it is just about how the data and how the evidence supports what we're trying to show. How much would, I guess, pers- like how hard is that to remove personal opinion? Because Again, I mean, they, they say stats don't lie, but there's always an interpretive nature of the information, isn't there? So you, you can't look at that. I, I guess maybe as an outside, as you are now, as an outside source, like, but you've, you're still going to have maybe biases and and beliefs around the rugby that you prefer and that type of stuff. So how hard is that within your role, either now or previously, not to kind of be going in with a, ah, uh, yeah, I, I've seen this number, but how I interpret that number relative to other numbers, example, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like how, how do you manage that challenge? That is certainly a challenge because you're right. And, and, I, and I said, I'm an advocate of that. The subjective has to be there as well and you have to layer it together. So you'll always have some interpretation of the data that might be different from different people. And in certain organizations or or circumstances, you can find the data that you want. Um, You also quote their stats, don't lie. I see lots of people on Twitter saying, I think the quote is lies, lies and damn statistics. So you can spin that both ways. And depending on your point of view, you you can interpret that how you want. I think for me personally, I, f- I find it easier. I got better and better at it the more I did it. I've, I've been working as an analyst for over a decade. So I've, I find it a little bit easier to present the data. And I will argue almost the point of the data 
Again, nothing to do with my opinion. This is what the data says. This is what it represents. That's it. If that is a coach, if that is an analyst or pundit on TV, you can then interpret that in your own way. That's your, that's fine. All I will do is just tell you exactly what the numbers mean, exactly what that does. You go off and do it. And everybody is different. Again, if it's that situation, if I'm supporting um, one of the BT pundits, they'll take it and they'll do it their own way. I've then done some of my own and I'll do it in a different way. Um, but the data sort of remains the same, I suppose. And I get that that's a challenge. And as your point says, that is then, you know, you might have some conflict even with the same data. Um, but personally, I find it fairly easy just to say this is what the data says and leave out the, the human subjective element to it to an extent as much as possible. What, so thinking, I guess, maybe outside the organisation, so your role now, how important do people like Charlie become in terms of the ability to tell the story? Because I think, as you said, like on social media, there are some brilliant people that kind of produce data almost. I would say there's, there's almost, they're almost slightly separate. Like here, here's the stats, make of them what you will. And then I think there's some great people and on both sides, they're, they're wonderful. Then there's some people kind of, here's the data, what's the story it says. And and obviously, Charlie, I think you do a fantastic job. And anyone that follows me on Twitter will know how often I, I retweet your stuff. Um, because I think the stories that come with it are, are just really crucial to help people understand because it's there's so much nuance and complexity and things. So from your role, Ross, I'd be interested in, in what do you think of, of that? I know we talked offline at the beginning how, how you kind of, you know, Charlie uses your stuff regularly and those types of things. So how, how important are those people that I guess work to translate some of this stuff? Well, I'll tell you the same chance here to, to compliment Charlie and how good I think his stuff is. And I'm not saying that because he sat here genuinely... And, and he was perhaps a bit kind to me. We had we had a few conversations sort of a, a long time ago, fairly long time ago, and helped him out. And then everything else he does from then is all his own. But I, I hope that that sort of helped him and, and sort of kickstart what he does. And, and all that is, again, is, is my point of the Moneyball thing, is it provides evidence to what he's saying. So his stories, I have so much trust and confidence in them because there's proof. Here's that point. Here's this. Here's this. And it's not always numbers. There's some. There's some video clips. There's some diagrams that go with it. But it's proof. It's evidence of the points that Charlie are making are relevant, are accurate. There's some research gone into it. I'm not going to name names, but particularly people who aren't sort of in the media world a little bit anymore and in the rugby sphere, you know, perhaps older fellas, go down the roots of this is my opinion, and I'm going to shout this to the rooftops. And as soon as you question that or or criticize in any way question that that opinion you know where's the proof of that anybody can say their opinion on say i'd make something up but what why is that relevant why does that actually mean something to me why am i going to listen to that well here's all my evidence here's all the points brilliant thank you and i think that's where the world's going with, with how they digest information you know the bite-sized things of social media and so on that's how it works so for charlie that's brilliant and i think that's that's relevant for for me in, in a way that um Trying to provide that evidence is is the main thing. Don't get lost in your own opinions. Just present what you've got. Sorry, Charlie. Yeah. I, I just point. I was just going to jump in to just point. Um, you said at the beginning that knowledge is power, and there's a, certainly I certainly agree that there's a fear around how um, you know. So that's a fairly big word, but I think it's certainly resonant as far as this conversation because um, there can be a scepticism of, of those numbers when opinion can be the thing that you've fallen back on before. And, and there is, as you, you mentioned there, um, the eye test certainly has value, I would say. Um, I would point listeners towards the series of articles that you did with Alan Dimmock of Rugby World over the, um, over the Six Nations, because I feel that that is, that's the level that I think that, that coverage should should be aiming for because it wasn't the, the there was the con there was the eye test. It, uh, forgive me if I'm, I'm if I get some of this wrong, but I think it was it was the one that's sticking out in my mind was how France were attacking and generating quick ball, and you were giving you were delivering the ruck speeds not only sort of as an average across the game but of the try scoring sequences. And that's when you think, oh, geez, like why is that? Why is that defensive line compromised? Oh, it's because there were there were three three rucks under quick seconds, in, under quick under two seconds, easy for you to say, in a row. And then you're like, all right, okay, that's brilliant. How often does that happen in a game? When that does happen in a game, how does the defence kind of escape from it? Um, awesome. And that is, I think, that's kind of where 
rugby has maybe been um, content to ignore that. And, and, and I think that is the next, that is the how we paint pictures more vividly. And actually, I think that's why, and, and there's always this striving, it's another American sport, not isn't baseball, but the, the NFL, that's, I think that's coveted a lot by, by rugby. And I think that's what they get really well, because there is a certain subset of NFL fans. There are fans that are engaged in the rivalries and their teams and the, and the stories. There are more that are engaged in the players like me. So I watch, funnily enough, have got into NFL from watching Hard Knocks, which is probably says, you know, a lot about my biases and why I like Lions documentaries so much. But then there's another subset that are into, you know, um, it's not the same, but I'm trying to think of, because they have next gen stats, don't they? Um, right. It just got really kind of interesting. So that, then you can look into sort of, you know, post-contact meters. Why is Billy Vanapola so, so valuable? That sort of thing. Um, where does he make those meters? Um, I had I had my notes open from a reread Moneyball fairly recently to do a piece with um, Oval Insights and, and their their influence with Leicester Tigers, and the quote I've got at these um, the top of these notes is inefficiencies in the game. That's what um, this was all about for the OAs, and I think that's there's inefficiencies in, in rugby coverage, which is what people like Ross can really help with. And I, I just want to make a point as well to sort of um, talk back to your your first point, Charlie. You were talking about is where so where things come from is that if you've got the story and the backgrounds and, and the human stories and um, you know all of that engaging kind of content, that's one thing. If you've got you know the start of rugby on the pitch, that's another thing. If you've got lots of people like you know, behind the scenes kind of stuff. All of these things are still relevant and they still contribute. And I just think it's this extra little arm of things that people are perhaps missing, slowly coming around to it. The fact that I have a job in the first place and I do what I do is sort of um, highlighting that people think that BT, in very fairness to them as well, they came to us. I was working for England at the time and came to us and said, we want to talk on the same level that you guys are talking about. We don't want to be ill-informed so that we talk about something and then something completely random happens on the pitch and we've got no idea about it. So they were proactive about that. And it gets more and more, and even the fact that, you know, me, myself, do some commentary and I've worked with Alan and and we're doing some more uh, and lots of different things. Did some stuff with the RFU for the Premier 15's final um, without to my own horn as well. We just sort of looked to the numbers of that and it was the highest um, performing feature that they did throughout the year, I think. It just purely just to show that there's an appetite for that and when you can't, when you hark back to the older guys of rugby who think you know, data is not important, I don't want the stats, I don't want it. We're not saying you, your point isn't relevant, your opinion pieces aren't relevant, the, the, the human side aren't relevant, they are, but you just need this extra little bit as well because people then engage with it. It's how they engage. As you said, the next-gen stats with NFL, people love that stuff. And in, in America, might be slightly different, yes, but they love that. And, and for me, the big point of that is it, it educates them. It gives you a point of difference or something to look at and understand what you're seeing. Your example of, of, of the article of ruck speeds when you're in a try scoring possession. If you've seen that or you have now understood that, like, oh, well, that's, I'm going to look out for that. And then you next time you're watching a game, like, geez, those rucks are quick. And I can see that. I can see the disorganization now in defense. And that's why that line break happened. Like, that's engaging to me. That's educating these, the fans and the casual fans. And, and that's that's huge once he gets to World Cup and Six Nations. Everyone says it's just casual fans and they don't want anything. But if you can educate them and, and help them to understand what they are seeing, they will be more engaged in it the next time and the next time. And they'll go to the pub and they'll talk to their mates. Like, did you see the rock speed on the weekend? Like, it will filter in and it will be something that they want to cling on to. I am um, the, the the guys that you've you've kind of um, illustrated this perfectly, which is that the, the the very best people that are working in this sphere are not saying that their methods are the be all and end all. They are very flexible and very wary that we're in a, well, rugby is, is a sport where the intangibles are so important. And just to bring that back to, to, to Leicester, Tigers again and Oval Insights, Freddie Burns, who's just won the premiership with a drop goal, was a signing who I don't, not privy to the, to the real ends of it, but they, picked him I'm fairly sure because he would be a fantastic versatile deputy for George Ford who could impart this kick pressure game um, 
that would be the tangible side of it, which was what they probably looked at as far as his kicking metres. And he ended up actually, so in the, in the premiership season, regular season, I think, and including the semi-finals was the last time I looked at it. But um, so George Ford's top for kicking me, it's per 80. Ben Young's was second. Freddie Burns was fifth. So three three players in the, in the, from the same team in top five, crazy. Um, then the intangible side of it, which is what I think, again, Oval would, will have thought about. People like um, Chris Ashton, Richard Wigglesworth coming in, not only coming in, starting the biggest game of the year because of that experience and those intangible values. And that is what, that's, that marriage is how we get comprehensive with it, I think. Yeah, I fully agree. Do you think, I, I will just laugh, Ross, I, I think the individual you're mentioning has probably blocked everyone anyway, so he won't hear this if it goes out. So the fact you're laughing kind of confirms that's all good. Um, do you think the challenge for rugby is NFL can do loads more of this stuff, I guess, just because of the money involved? So it, my perception, and I, I don't know the media side at all really, is the challenge will be rugby tries to be all things. In, in terms of coverage, it seems to be or has been all things to all people because it probably just doesn't have the finance or the ability to kind of separate that. Right, here's, here's I'm not going to call them diehards. Here's a data-focused commentator or a stream that, that kind of focuses in more detail. Like I go back to the NFL like I think Sky and Channel 5 or Channel 4 used to have it. And if you watched it on Channel 4 or Channel 5, whichever one it was, they were like, this is for the casual fan. Like we're going to explain stuff really basically. And if you if you know the game, like this isn't the coverage for you. So please go and watch somewhere else and don't complain to us that this is like dumbed down. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like we just get caught in this flip-flop where during the Six Nations, commentators oh if you're if you're new to rugby or you're watching for you know you don't watch it very much like here's here's what's happening which probably drives the the people that know the game insane but we we only ever get that one perspective where we're just trying to cover all our bases do you think diversification of output i guess is how i describe it like is that the way forward from your guys perspective is that how we cover more of the market i'll just try and jump in there straight away just because of um to give you some insight into sort of BT and how they do things and meetings that we've had fairly recently, but you know, um, the lay of the land is changing a little bit with the discovery connection. But they wanted to push this thing called OBB, which is objective based broadcasting. So they wanted to, they ideally want everybody to watch um, all of their sport and their rugby through the app because of the interactive nature of the app. They say sort of like the best engagements and their best viewers come from the app. And if they do that, and if they can do that, and then they might be able to build channels when it's effectively like the app, so you're still watching on your TV and stuff, but you have the functionality of the app, and you can then choose what you watch. You can choose your coverage from commentators, you know, alternate commentary, from stats, from the amount of data that's on your screen. F1 is a great example now with everything that's built up from them. There's so much data, and I love that. I might be biased. But if you can, if, if there's a whole load of data that you want, you want absolutely everything, you pick that. If you want somewhere in the middle, you pick that. If you want nothing at all, you just sort of swipe it all away and it's gone. You might even be able to control the camera angles that you see. You can become a director at home and you can filter what you see. You might want to see just a big sort of hide behind of the, of the game for a little while from the side cameras or zoomed in tight on certain players, player watch, whatever it might be. You have the ability to do that. And then the purpose for that was... A uh, brilliant um, sort of insight from BT's um, CEO was a bit like you're saying, Phil, if you aim down the middle, you miss everyone. Nobody wants that down the middle. You have guys all on this side who are the casual viewers that that's too much for. You've got guys on the top end who that's absolutely nothing for and that's frustrating. Them. So give everybody what they want. And, and I mean, maybe in the, in the meantime, the, the answer is different broadcasts is, if you want really detailed, insightful articles, go and read Charlie's. If you want sort of skimmed over opinions of some other guys, you know, find that, find those, and they'll all be there. So you can find whatever you want. But having the option of both or, or everything, I think, is very, very important. And whether that's on different channels or different people in the media or whatever it is, giving people the option to choose whatever they want to choose and whatever suits them is really great. As soon as you go down the route of saying, 
I'm not going to do this at all. I'm not going to do this at all. Then you're going to lose somebody and a lot of people. So give everybody everything would be my answer to that. Fantastic. I mean, just, yeah, if, if it, and if it moves or continues to move further that way, then as you say, I just, I think it would just make more, more people more happy and more engaged. And that seems to be, I think a lot of people are craving rugby to to break its own glass ceiling almost. That that seems to be a feel at the moment that they want to take it to a wider audience. So really, really positive. Um, I do think so, Phil, just on that as well, just I was thinking of another example of just how, if it's, it's a weird thought, I, I don't know why I ever had to describe this, but if people like rugby, they're going to like rugby, if you know what I mean. If you, you give them rugby stuff to talk about, again, Yes, the personal side of things, the behind the scenes stuff, still important. But if they're watching the rugby, they're probably going to want to know about it. So um, BBC this year for the Six Nations, the rugby special afterwards, uh, one of the first ones I saw, Hugo, is hosting it. Um, Sam, who is the very, very best pundit for me, Sam Warburton. Uh, but John Barker's on there as well, who's brilliant. And they had an hour, and it's ad-free, so it was an hour, of just looking at all of the rugby and what happened and why these players did they what they did and the stats and how it showed and how they got their results and everything like that. And that is incredible. It wasn't in the main show. And that was another thing I was going to say earlier with NFL and things and baseball and cricket specific, specifically. There is so much time in those sports. There's so much dead time. There's so many breaks in play that you can have to fill that time and you're going to do it with that kind of stuff. Rugby is different and rugby is hard. And, and sort of to give you an idea of that, the amount of stuff that we would do and have prepared, and it just gets dropped, and it get and you miss something, and the and the and the game changes. Someone goes and scores a try. We're talking about Harlequin's collision dominance, and then they get absolutely smashed up. I'm not actually going to talk about that right now. So, so that is that is a limiting factor, and that is a hard aspect to, to deal with, and then it's perhaps more specific to rugby because of that. But then outside of the games, maybe there's more place there. A highlight show afterwards, media articles, things like that. That is a place for it and, and it could do better there. That, um, that show got Danny Cipriani talking about England's attack, didn't it? And that was that was real eye-opening stuff just as far as how simple Danny was making it and the simple ideas that those players would, principles that would potentially make it a little bit better and how confused it was. It was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Love it. Um, as I said before, I could chat to you guys all day, but I'm I'm very conscious of both your time. So um I will probably just kind of leave that one there. Um top recommendations. You guys have mentioned a couple of bits as you've gone, but any any other like top top recommendations for stuff what you might be engaging with at the moment, just just stuff you like. What's what would you throw out there for people to maybe engage with if uh, if they've enjoyed the conversation today? Um, you bringing up F1, uh, Ross, really obvious one, but Drive to Survive, just as far as how much momentum that's created, I think maybe even maybe even just revisiting it is just, it's, it's done wonders for F1, hasn't it? Certainly, yeah. I mean, it's um, it going to be copied and people are desperate to copy that in every sport, but um, I can't remember the name of it, but it follows the Harlequins sort of story last year that's on Amazon Prime. Um, you know, that'd be a good one to get some insight. Even the stuff, the old school stuff, like those hard knocks of rugby and those kind of things, those grassroots levels um, that, that you're looking at and, and how you engage with players and how you get them into the sport in the first place. You know, those stuff, that stuff is amazing. Top level stuff, uh, you know, of data or, or insight into international games and things, you know, there's, there's plenty of others out there, articles and so on. But there, there's, again, as we're saying, hopefully something for everyone. Fantastic. Uh, where can people find you? Where can they engage with you? For me personally, I'm almost uh, only on Twitter. I don't use social media at all. Not my not my thing. So I only post about rugby stuff as well. You won't get any boring stuff about my life. Um, but uh, at Roscoe Hamilton is for me on Twitter. Yeah, my, my wife's in charge of the baby pictures on Instagram. So I'm just at Charlie Felix uh, uh, Twitter. <laughs> Fantastic. Guys, uh, as I said, I've absolutely loved this. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, really, really insightful. Uh, I'll round up the roundup. To those listening, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to the guys for coming on and contributing to a brilliant discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. 